Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Kevin Campbell, a lighting designer and rigging electrician who's worked on films like Miss Sloan, Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, and Andy Machete's It. His TV credits include Beauty and the Beast, Heroes Reborn, and all four seasons of Star Trek Discovery. He's also a filmmaker, and his latest short, the very clever psychological thriller Receiver, just shared the Air Canada Best Short Film Award at the Real Asian Film Festival in Toronto this week. It's available to stream in the festival's Film Frenzy program through this Thursday, November 19th, at realasian.com. Kevin picked What's Up, Doc? Peter Bogdanovich's 1972 ode to the screwball comedies on which he grew up, with Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand channeling Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, and Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck and Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, in a chaotic tale of swapped valises, mistaken identities, pretentious academics, and the occasional carrot. Look, if I got any further into the plot, you'd think I was hallucinating. You'd think you were hallucinating. This is someone else's movie. When I was putting together a couple of ideas, some of the ones that I latched onto immediately were expected things that you, that you would think that like, okay, of course a film director is going to want to bring up something like this. And several of those I immediately had to jettison because much smarter, faster people off the block on your podcast have already talked about them, right? <laughs> um, but there was still a handful of like, what are for me personally, classics and standbys that I thought, oh, there's got to be something more interesting. If we're going to like, I think what I've always appreciated about your podcast is that there's always something very timely about the selection of films. And I don't know to what extent the release schedule takes that into consideration or whether I'm reading things into uh, happy accidents. But, um, but I felt like, okay, well, what's, what's timely right now? And I realized I don't want to talk about another bloody depressing movie because <laughs> everybody's bloody depressed. We're all trapped at home right now and the world is on fire. And I thought, okay, there are three movies in my life that no matter how bad things have gotten, I can watch any one of the three and it automatically cheers me up. And this is one of them. And I thought, this is a movie that, the other two are more recent films. I, I, people talk about them uh, a, a little more uh, commonly simply because, well, they're more recent. And I thought, this is a movie from the 1970s that like a lot of people don't really talk about much. So this has got to be the thing. I want, if I've got to do some homework getting ready for this, I want it to be happy homework that leaves <laughs> me in a good mood. And so that seemed like like a good plan. Like if if this movie can, no matter how bad things are, always make me smile, then maybe it's going to do the same for some other people who haven't discovered it yet, you know? Yeah, I hadn't seen it probably since the late 80s, um, maybe even the mid 80s. Uh, I, 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 I had revisited bits and pieces of it, but I hadn't watched it top to tail in, I guess, at least 30 years. And it hit me while I was watching it this time that we are so much further away now from the release of the film than it was from the movies that it it's riffing on, uh, which would have only been 30 or 40 years in the past themselves. It's such a, a strange artifact now because it is so retro then. And I was kind of transfixed by it. I don't know that I laughed this time through. I just admired it. I, I, I was sort of fascinated by the structure and the, and the specific referencing of, of tropes, you know, like slamming, door slamming farce, literally being that for almost 
two thirds of the film set on that floor of that hotel. Uh, the car chase that just keeps escalating the, the elements that are surprisingly not racist or sexist given 1972. I was really hoping you'd bring that up because, <laughs> because I, so I, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I own the, I own the movie on Blu-ray so I can dip into it anytime I kind of want, but before rewatching it to, to get ready for, for, for us chatting about it, I probably hadn't watched it in a couple of years. And this time around I watched it. And of course, with everything that's been going on in the world, I was kind of preparing myself that it's like, okay, there's going to be some problematic stuff here. I need to prepare like, like, Take from it what is fair to take from it, and also don't shy away from the critiques. Sure, and I gotta say, it, like it's it's not. I was expecting it to be so much worse. I was expecting it even in two years to to have aged so poorly in terms of its social outlook on things. And the funny thing is, for a for a film that like has a lot of insults and a lot of like joke slapstick humor, mm. it is consistently warm hearted throughout possibly with the exception of just the fact that it like uniformly treats Madeline Kahn's character as a shrill harpy, but yeah. maybe we'll talk about that in a bit, but I think it's also a little more complex in how it deals with her and what she brings to that performance than to just say, uh, it treats her, it, it treats her like the keeping woman. Um, but I think that's probably the most problematic part in it that hasn't, that has weathered the least well. Otherwise it's like, it's pretty warm hearted and open for, for a movie of its generation, you know? Yeah, I was really, I mean, it's its its downright progressive in a lot of things that it does. Um, and I was really impressed with the way Bogdanovich doesn't, well, I was going to say doesn't caricature anyone, but basically he treats everyone at the same level of caricature, so it's okay. Um, even, even, yeah, even Eunice being so bossy uh, works as a character point because Howard is there to be bossed. He's he's either taking orders from her or from Judy, depending on what the situation is. And he really, there is never a moment where he develops agency and stands up for himself. It's great. He just keeps leaving situations rather than taking charge. And it's such a strange and unlikely use of, of Ryan O'Neill, who was, I mean, he's not exactly a dynamic leading man of the 70s, but he had a presence that was certainly more assertive than what he's doing here. And it, it's clearly, it's a riff on Cary Grant and the, and the distracted, befuddled scientist uh, of bringing a baby, but it's also just so strangely self-defeating that I really like it as a, as a performance choice. He just, he doesn't stand up to Barbara Streisand. He just lets her steamroll him and it's the right move. Absolutely. I, I genuinely think, and you might debate me on this point, but I actually think it is Ryan O'Neill's best performance. And I say that as somebody who is a huge fan of Barry Lyndon, okay. but I feel like what you're talking about, and I think you probably phrased it in a more diplomatic way than I might have, which is to say that he, that, that O'Neill in that era was typically not a very dynamic or layered performer. Hmm. Um, I think that kind of, blankness uh that that, that that exists in 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 a lot of his you know typical performances really works for the character of Howard Bannister in a way that it has never exactly worked for me for the character of Barry Lyndon even though I adore that film and to be okay. clear Barry Lyndon is a, a stronger film it's a better film overall than than What's Up Doc obviously two very different genres yeah. but but I actually think taking his his performance out of those two films and looking at them solely in terms of what he was trying to do uh, within the context of what the film was trying to be. I actually think, I actually think Howard Bannister is a much stronger performance than Barry <laughs> Lyndon. His timing is definitely better. 
It's um, and and I I suspect that's simply because Bogdanovich worked with his actors and Kubrick didn't really. Um, it, it, at least in Barry Lyndon, it seems like O'Neill is there to be a figure. Um, yes, like iconically representative of something, but not necessarily uh, someone with a rich inner life. Howard Bannister doesn't have a rich inner life either, but he has. But a the time joke is that he doesn't because almost nobody does. Yeah, right. That like the rich inner life is the slapstick for all of these characters because everybody's rich in her life is ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, um, Judy is, I don't know who she is. She's just a volcano of knowledge, right? She she knows everything and is good at nothing. Uh, but it's, that's, again, that's the screwball heroine uh, in a nutshell. She's she's been to, I, I, was, I lost count of how many different institutions she's been to. Uh, it's a couple dozen at least. And of yeah. course it's like three weeks here, two weeks there. It doesn't really matter. It's yeah. all just there to pay off the ending, which is magnificent. But the, the escalation of that, the fact that she knows everything and isn't, she's not mimicking knowledge either because when she's conversing with people who are experts in their fields, they understand her. She's not just babbling. Uh, but Streisand just brings it so fast that it might as well be improvised. And that's, uh, I've, I've always been, well, not always, I, I have constantly had to explain to people who ask about What's Up Doc, why it's called that. Uh, because obviously it's not, you, the, the first thought is, oh, this is going to be a Bugs Money movie. Yeah. Instead, there are people who occasionally eat carrots. And I like that. I like that it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always really loved with Streisand's performance, but like you alluded to, the fact that it's never this, it's never this, you know, stolen valor component of setting up that Judy is an intelligent and curious person. Like there's never that throwaway of having the assumption that because she's flighty, that she's dumb, Right. right? And I love the fact that that regularly people in the film consistently underestimate her and she always proves every one of them wrong in terms of having the last laugh about being able to whip out some tiny little bit of arcane knowledge. And I think it works so well in terms of just like, I think for me anyway, your, your earlier point about how surprisingly progressive the film is for its era. For me, that's one of the things that I look at as being really progressive because like, because that that is part of the joke, but the joke is never, oh, look, it's a woman who's really knowledgeable. The joke is, look at these idiots who never trust her to actually know anything because of her superficial delivery of, of anything that she's doing in any given moment. The joke is about her getting underestimated. The joke is not about, look how incongruous it is that this woman knows things. And I love that. It's like, it's great because I feel like if the, if, if the film didn't have such a soft spot for, for Streisand's character, she would be so unbearable <laughs> because it's got all the earmarkers. If you were to describe what she does scene to scene to somebody who had never seen the film, they'd be like, oh my God, this is an insufferable character to be around. But she's like, just so animated and just so fun. And the film clearly thinks that she's fun too. It's not trying to play the two-step game about like, oh, let's just let's just sideline her because she's a woman in the 70s, you know? So yeah. Everyone else is so stiff that just putting her in a room with them, except for Austin Pendleton, who is just having the best time. Uh this this delirious supporting player of someone who's genuinely, you know, intellectually curious and interested and and sees through 
the real jerks in the room and uh, and falls for Eunice, which also makes that work because she's not thrown away at the end. She finds a better happiness. Yeah. It's implied with him. And and also because Madeline Kahn is playing her and again, stunned that this was her first film role. Like she's two years away from Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. And this is how she's introduced to the world. Um, Yeah. She's great. I mean, it's a it's a really fun performance of a stiff. Uh, yeah, but so okay. The, I'm not sure if you'll agree with me on this point. I genuinely think that this is Madeline Kahn's sexiest performance, <laughs> and I and I say that specifically because the film like goes because obviously yes, like her performances uh, as uh, as uh, Madame von Stupp in in um, in Blazing Saddles obviously is is much more of a sex pot role by design but but this film is so invested in in like in trying to make her as unattractive as possible but like with a wink and a nod like I don't think the film genuinely believes that she's unattractive or unbearable yeah. uh, in in every way but it, it goes to such great lengths to do so and it cannot possibly managed to dim just what an interesting and like lively performer she is. And just, I I don't know, there is something to be that though I would never want to be with a woman like Eunice, (laughs) that is like, that is just absolutely captivating for me about how she, she performs on screen. Like, like, it is, in my mind, an as sexy performance as what Streisand is doing, even though they're like diametrically opposed in the reasons why they're sexy, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, they're both, hmm, they both know what they want and who they are. And Eunice just has a whole bunch of illusions about who she's with. And yeah. Judy yeah, doesn't really even- That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, Judy doesn't even entertain who Howard is. She immediately gives him a different name and a different history and just pushes him to be that version of himself, which he's incredibly uncomfortable with, which is why it's funny. Yeah. But she's also not, again, she, you're right, she's not wrong. She has the instincts for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, I don't know. I think just some really, really interesting performances. And, uh, and you know, even the, the the weird scenes that should not work, like when, like when Bannister ends up on the, on the top floor, the, the, the unfinished construction floor and finds Judy laying on a grand piano yeah. at random in a, in a construction zone. And they just start playing so she can, so she can sing. And it's like, it, it feels so on the nose and yet it's like, it is such an enjoyable scene to watch the two of them because it's like, you can genuinely feel that these two people just like being around each other and it's kind of infectious, you know? Even yeah, though yeah. the scene itself is ludicrous and had had Judy not been played by Streisand, that scene would obviously not exist in the film, but it 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 works. It manages to work in a way that... I feel like there's a whole lot in this film that by description alone should not work. Like this film is so much better than just its synopsis would suggest to you that it is. And I keep discovering new and little wonderful things that I that I keep finding in little corners of the frame and moments, throwaway moments and scenes that just that makes me laugh because of because of just like it seemed like it was probably a, a pretty fun set to come to work on, except if you were Polly Platt. Um, yeah. That was probably yeah, having having just listened through Karina um, <laughs> Longworth's season on, you must remember this about Polly Platt, which I cannot recommend enough if you haven't listened to it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it is so good, but it is oh god, seeing her do some of the best work of her production design career, like 
after she and Bogdanovich had broken up and learning about what she was going through personally at the time and how she like kept all of that to the side just to invest so much professionally into every project was heartbreaking because I think so much of what works about this film visually and at a lot of the gags when it comes to the slapstick, um, we need to credit Polly Platt for like, like she's the reason why the film is set in San Francisco and San Francisco is a character in this movie because Bogdanovich did not, he fought her against this as the story goes apparently uh, and did not want to set it in San Francisco. And she had to drag him by the ear basically in that. And I'm like, wow, that is, that is the kind of dedication you don't often get from a production designer, especially one that you have treated so poorly. Well, yeah. Given, given how little she, needed to invest in it at that point. I think we can say the fact that she did, of course she was a consummate professional, but also just, yeah, above and beyond. And, and with, yeah, without her, I mean, a lot of films would be very different if she wasn't involved with them, but this is, yeah. The, I mean, when I think about this, the, the tiniest details, the way the, um, just the bags themselves and the way everything around them, all the physicality stems from something that has to be small, portable, recognizable. Um, that's a design point and, and one that you can argue about forever. It still seems ridiculous to me that that bag would be so popular, but of course it was 1972 and, you know, it, that was, that was how things were. It was a different time, but she's got such a, yeah, her fingerprints are all over it. I'm trying to come up with a better way of saying that, but that's exactly what it is. No, I think that's I think that's a perfect summation because I I think so much of how this film works at its best with its slapstick is as a lot of slapstick is by nature visual, and so much of so many of the visual gags operate not exclusively on the basis of, you know, visual gags in terms of how the actors perform a, a moment or a, a line or a scene, but the visual gags based on all of the peripheral imagery and objects that that surround the, the performers in this. And from what I've heard uh, about, I mean, just the way that Polly Platt worked in general as a, as a production designer, she she invested so much more than was typically expected of a production designer at the time. And so there was this incredible unity of bringing together a whole lot of different avenues of design within, within the films, even down to apparently her working really closely with, with several of the cinematographers who were, who were working with her on a film, which, I mean, when you work in film, you know that oftentimes the designer and the cinematographer can be at loggerheads, depending <laughs> on how the production's actually working. But but, you know, hearing about the level of work and the level of artistry and, and unified vision that she brought to her work is, to me, astounding. And I think, I think brings, of the three movies that she did with Bogdanovich, I think this is the one that I feel her influence the most, even though we could argue it's not the best of those three films. But I think without her, it is the one that I, I think would have had the least of a chance of becoming what it is, you know? Yeah. Well, it's the modern one, right? It's the only one that was shot in the present day or set in the present day. And so that gives her license to comment on things in a way that wasn't possible with the other ones. The um, I was just thinking like Dr. Larrabee's apartment, which is the most pretentious 1972 environment you can imagine, but all of the pieces of it factor into the action. All those ridiculous art uh, sculpture. I don't even know how you would describe that that metal tree thing that was really yeah. in vogue for about six hours. And, the, and that, and that's, and that stupid uh, bobble lamp thing that yep. like 
oh god that i'm pretty sure my parents had one of if all i of recall parents, correctly yeah all um, of our parents had one and but but you're absolutely right it's like it's not just throwaway wallpaper every single element gets used in that fight scene that happens in that apartment yeah it's so good it's so good <laughs> so when did you first discover this i mean you couldn't have seen it in its initial release <laughs> I'm not quite that old. No, I was um, four, so I, I yeah. may have actually gone been near a theater that had it, but I didn't see it until a few years later. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so for me, the first time I would have seen it was now. I can't tell you the exact age I was, but I would have been probably somewhere in my early double digits. Okay, and a lot of that, and the credit for that really goes to my my dad, who's like an architect and a painter, but has been a huge film buff for like his entire life. Uh, and certainly my entire life. And um, he's the whole, he's one of the whole reasons and very big one, why I became a filmmaker because he, he suffused so much of my, my youth uh, and my childhood with this like awareness that, that films were not just a form of entertainment, but were like a palpable mode of expression um, that could follow a person through their lives and have commentary on several different phases of a person's life. If it was a really strong film that spoke to you. And, um, he always made it seem like, well, this is, this is something you can do with your life if you want to. Uh, and so a lot of the films that have become my favorites are absolutely films he introduced me to that he saw in their initial release. Okay. Um, and this was one of them that d during the stretch, probably at any point between when I was, I don't know, 11 and 14 was probably one of the ones that, uh, that, that, uh, that he sat me down to, uh, to, to watch with him. And I, I will, I will be perfectly honest. Most of the films that I really love now that I was introduced to in that era, I either did not get, or I hated when I first saw them <laughs> because, and it's to my dad's credit, even though it didn't feel like it at the time, I was typically way too young to really, interlock well with like what the film was trying to get across to really sure, understand yeah. it. And, but he introduced me to like basically all of the films that are in my, my top 10 that are older than like the 1990s. He introduced me to, and uniformly I hated every single one of them when I first saw them. I th thought Lawrence of Arabia was boring. I did not understand Blade Runner. And I thought it was a really weird science fiction film that I did not get because my understanding of sci-fi at that time was exceptionally limited, you know, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey put me to sleep. Like, but, but he still, you know, this sounds abusive this way, but still like <laughs> forced me to watch them in this, in this mindset that I think was absolutely correct. That it's like, you might not love them now, but for all the things you love now, you are going to love these soon. Mm. And I don't know, created this really interesting bedrock that there were films that I was introduced to then. And this was growing up like in rural PEI. So this was all off like crappy VHS videotapes that we have to get from, from an hour drive into Charlottetown. And, um, and it's like films that I would go back to repeatedly because, well, kind of like I alluded to my dad's idea that he expressed to me very young, which is that films can continue to influence you in lots of different phases in your life if they're strong enough and have, have enough meaning for you. But they would be films that I, I remember not liking, but I also remember thinking a lot about. So I would go and revisit them a few years later and, and be like, oh man, I was a complete idiot. I missed out on, on so much of this. And I think that was probably the case for, for What's Up Doc also, that like, I know I didn't really get it and really didn't think it was funny exactly. Um, 
in the in the type of humor that I liked at the time that I first saw it. But then a couple of years later, probably when I was in the, at the very beginning of high school, I rewatched it and I thought it was an absolute gas. So thanks, Dad. Yeah, nobody wants to have to admit that their parents were right all along, but clearly your dad saw some sort of artistic consciousness forming in you and, and nudged you along. I mean, what was, um, what were you into at the time? That's a good question. I mean, probably at that time, my favorite film that I could describe as a straightforward comedy was probably Ghostbusters. I would right. Think. That was a, um, yeah, that was a touchstone for a lot of people. Yeah. Which to be clear, still a great film. It's not in my top 10 anymore, but it's still up there. It probably makes my top 25. Um, forgive me for being insufferable and talking about a top 25, but um, people have lists. It's fine. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, that would probably be the kind of comedy that I was most into around that time. Um, And uh, so that, so you can probably sort of see the, 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 the way that like that sort of comedy sensibility is a touch different from a 1972 slapstick comedy that's in it in itself a throwback to films from 20 years before and 30 years before most of which i was probably only discovering contemporaneously anyway so i'm sure it took me until the point that i would have rewatched that maybe at 16 or something uh to have gotten enough of a grounding and seen, you know, bringing up baby and arsenic and old lace and you know even things like like um like uh, the African Queen, which is not a straightforward comedy, but obviously owes a lot to to, to the tail end of the studio comedy era. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that I would have then had an understanding of like, oh, this is what this film is trying to be, and this is how I can meet it on its own terms. Yeah, and there's a shared chaos, too. Ghostbusters has a lot of stuff that just clatters and smashes and explodes, uh, which at the time felt anarchic, I guess, in the in the in line with Animal House and things like that. But Animal House also ends in an orgy of destruction, not unlike What's Up Doc, um, with a parade being crashed and people just scattering everywhere. The um the thing about What's Up Doc is that it never loses the focus on the two people being chased. It doesn't get it gets bigger, the chase gets more elaborate as more elements are added to it, but it's always about those two people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um and I think, yeah, and, and I, I think following along with that, it's obviously less an ensemble piece than than those like late 70s, early 80s comedies sure, yeah. uh, were. And but f- for me, I think I think probably the thing that I, I can now recognize as a difference between those two styles of comedy a little bit is the level of sort of irony that exists in the type of humor like like Ghostbusters is such a like winking and ironic film. And I, I, I kind of love it for that reason. But what I still find really charming about, about what's up doc is that like, there's very little irony to it in terms of it, it as an object in and of itself. Mm. Like it's, it, it does the wink and the nod in terms of how it references its, its, um, its forebears within, within studio comedies of the thirties and forties and fifties. But, but it's not, it's it's it doesn't have that like ironic distance. It is it is it, it is a genuine film in a way that like Ghostbusters is a like cynical film. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's a celebration of the form, in in the specific reference points, to the point where I'm I was trying to figure out if it was maybe Bogdanovich being so in love with the classical setups of the period that he didn't bring any new energy to some of them, which which I think is intentional, but also kind of weird. Just the way that. Um, he doesn't use a lot of close-ups 
in the rapid fire sequences. He he settles for masters with O'Neill just sort of muttering the punchlines in the under his breath in the background, which like it made me focus on it in a really interesting way, but it also disrupts your your expectations of shot reverse shot close up shot reverse shot close up that that powered those movies. But he I think some part of him is trying to say, well, they weren't that sophisticated with the camera setups. And if you look at the Philadelphia story, the, the close-ups are very, very rare and they're always soft focusy. And I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to shoot masters. And, and then, you know, the occasional reaction shot, it's, it's like, it's a weirdly unsophisticated construction of a comic scene, but it makes you focus on the dialogue, which I think is the point. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've probably never thought about it in exactly those terms, but I think, but I think you're bang on. Um, the thing that I find interesting that I think dovetails nicely with that point that I've always kind of liked about it is that, uh, in terms of its cinematography, like in terms of how it's lit and stuff, I, I think it really helps the slapstick that it is absolutely not lit or 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 photographed like a slapstick comedy that you would expect of that era. Like it's it's lit. And I don't know to what extent this is intentional. It must be at least partially intentional. But it's it's lit and photographed like a like a Rock Hudson Doris Day romantic comedy. Oh yeah, yeah. And I kind of love that because, admittedly, that's not really my favorite style of cinematography or my favorite style of of, of lighting, just in general for the things that that speak to me in film. But I think it's really unassuming in terms of how it gets to the visual slapstick because it, it almost c- comes in through the side door a little bit because it, and, and I think this is what dovetails with, with, with your point a little bit is that it is kind of unsophisticated for as rapid fire as the, as the structure attests and, and how, how quickly we get shifts on, on a dime of character interactions and, 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 and buttons on jokes and things like that. And it's got, an incredibly intense amount of speed, mm-hmm. but it is it is photographed with an immense amount of slowness that I think just catches you off guard. That I think is is charming. I feel like in other circumstances that would be a really trite way of proceeding, but somehow comes together in a way that, like to me, just makes the funny bits funnier because yeah. they're so incongruous, you know, even visually speaking. Well, he's never, yeah, he's never showing you the funny. He's never telling you what to laugh at or what to focus on. I mean, even the car chase doesn't have a score, which I didn't remember. And to the point where I was thinking, did they have to take it out? Was there some score here before? But it wasn't. It was always like that. It just, it's just noise. It's just engine noise and crashing and chaos and yelling. And somehow it translates as deadpan in a way that, you know, maybe it shouldn't, but it does because you've already prepped us or he's already prepped us that way with the hallway sequences where people are just sort of peeking their heads out of doors and closing them and opening them and closing them. But there is no little musical sting to make it funny. It's just a thing that keeps happening. And then that translates into the chaos of the car chase where more things keep happening. And we know who everybody is at this point. We're all invested in in the trajectory. And it's, you know, there's no point in trying to figure out who has which bag because it is a magnificent game of three card Monty. I think at the very beginning, I kind of got it. I mean, we see what's inside and then it immediately starts scrambling them. So there's no point in which room is that person in? Why did he go through that door? Does it even matter? And then of course, no, it doesn't because it's just all noise and chaos and, and, um, and shuffling. Yeah, no, totally. What's interesting too, following along on that, on that same line is it's like, it's also not 
edited like as as high speed a comedy as it kind of is. Right. Like it's also particularly interesting because it's it's Verna Fields who edited it. Like, and this is three years before she edited Jaws, right? And which is like, which still I, I'm sure to a lot of people seems really quaint editorially, given that given that it was like the beginning of the of the studio blockbuster era. But it is even for for it being three years before that, it's it's so not cut in a way that um, that 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 would in any way, I guess to 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 crib your earlier line, it never shows us the funny in how it's edited. Like there's almost no visual gags that are paid off in purely editorial ways. Yeah, just I Kenneth Mars getting pies in the face, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I I don't know. I I that's the thing I think on this rewatch that's that stuck out to me the most. It's, I was finding myself just just being like, because initially I was thinking of, you know, because I was taking notes during this, thinking about like, okay, well, what if it comes up do I want to talk about when we, when we chat about this today? And I was thinking initially like, yeah, right, Verna Fields, I wonder if there's some kind of corollary to make between like her work on this and then three years later basically starting blockbuster editing with, with Jaws. <laughs> And then I had that note at the very beginning as I was starting. And then at the end, my note was like, no, in fact, they do the exact opposite. <laughs> like that's, that's really not a very useful note at all because it's completely wrong. Um, I don't know. I, th- I just find so many choices that they make in this really, really charming because of the fact that they're like unassuming and are willing to just give us the rope to find the humor ourselves a couple of the times, mm-hmm. which is like really refreshing. Yeah, I think maybe there's that, early button on the the joke of of um Howard putting a rock back and obscuring Judy's face and just trying to trying to cut her off from him but even that is sort of jarring because this is going to sound I don't know if this is going to sound weird or not but you don't see that angle on Barbara Streisand's face anymore I mean she spent 20 years making sure she's only photographed in three-quarter profile from one side of her face and so to see the range of her head is jarring now it's just I was amazed it felt um it felt like the movie was getting away with something but that's only <laughs> but that's only because of history right it had nothing to do with the way the movie was made at the time um of course but, yeah yeah. Yeah, I'd never, I'd never really thought about it in those terms. Probably in part because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Streisand as an actress. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I think she's great in this, and I really love her performance. Um, but I, I think that's a really sensible point you just made. That I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff like that, particularly connected in films like this that have like a big star that that whose persona then overlapped in a lot of different fields the trajectory that they may have been on at the original time of making the film. I mean, it's, it's right there in the title of the Streisand effect. And, and so I feel like we end up taking, yeah, we end up taking what is then like the distant future from this film back into the film. Now that there's been 40 years of Streisand becoming like a complete and different persona, not exclusively connected just to her film acting work, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, this, I mean, even so, this is four years after Funny Girl, right? She's already won the right. Oscar. And and to see her without any kind of vanity um, in terms of protecting her image the way that she would subsequently, I mean, if you see The Prince of Tides or uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces, the film she directed herself, Yeah, she she is clearly invested in a certain version of herself uh, that she puts into the world. And I don't, I don't even mean that negatively. It's just clearly she sees herself a certain way. And this film 
is someone else's vision. It's the way Bogdanovich sees her. And he's trying to put her in a screwball mode and she's going with it. And she does things that are loose and antic and unselfconscious in ways that I don't know that I've seen her do in other movies. Uh, maybe the early scenes of the way we were, she sort of pulls on that same string, but this is a, a really, it, it feels uncontrolled in a way that I don't often get from her. Even the scenes where she's singing, um, she's not fully techniquing the way she often does. Yeah. 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 No, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think it does bring up an interesting question that exists across the range of, of, of film genres and film acting, mm-hmm. um, which is just to what extent any performer is ever able to, to trust the director. And also to what extent that they should. I will level with you. There are plenty of directors out there that actors should not trust because they <laughs> do not have the actor's best interests in their, in, in their heart. But I've always felt like in a lot of work, and including my own, that like, as much as I think it's easy to make the commentary that actors get coddled and uh, a lot in terms of how we treat them as these fragile artists and things like that, it's also a really vulnerable position that I don't think I would ever be comfortable doing, knowing that I am giving over so much of, of, of my persona and my performance entirely to a person. Yeah. who, unless I have enough power, is not going to be beholden to having me in the editing room or to give me any advanced warning on the choices that they're going to make editorially. And then, like everybody else, I just get to see it when it's done. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think actors, even, even the fragile prima donna ones, have got to be given credit for the fact that, like, that is a tough position to be put in, you know? And so I think it probably says something about the, the kind of relationship one way or the other that Streisand had with Bogdanovich that you're absolutely right. She is able to do uh, like a ridiculous, but also very charming performance in a really unselfconscious way, you know? And I think, I think that's to both of their credits, even though, you know, I'm loath to credit Bogdanovich too much because the more I've learned about him as a person, the less I kind of like him. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but I gotta say, he, that's not a fluke. He was able to inspire that kind of relationship with actors over the course of well, all of his classic films and even some of his minor ones that followed. So I think it's to both their credits, but yeah, especially Streisand, like you said, I keep forgetting that this was after she won the Oscar. Yeah. Like she would have had absolute leeway to start making insistences upon, no, 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 this is how I'm going to be portrayed. I am an Oscar winner now. Yeah. Yeah. And she doesn't do that. No. It's so wonderful. It is almost like watching it this time and, and just that opening sequence, that wordless scene with the pizza, um, the, the, it is silent movie acting. I'm so hungry. Um, but it's also how you introduce an ingenue. I mean, this is how you introduce someone who's never been in a movie before, which is kind of fascinating because it's treating Barbara Streisand as though she's an unknown, even though I don't think anybody who bought a ticket to that movie would not have known who Barbara Streisand was. Uh, it's, yeah. it's such a strange choice, but it's that determination to treat this movie as though it was a 1930, you know, like a 1932 introducing Barbara Streisand as kind of project. Uh, he had them watch The Lady Eve famously, which has similar oh, cool. rhythms. Uh, yeah. And Preston Sturges also wasn't the most, I'm going to get yelled at for this, but wasn't the most sophisticated comedy director. He really preferred to point the camera and let the actors carry it. And you see a lot of that here too. But 
she's being given the room to redefine herself. I kind of wish she'd taken him up on that and, and made more comedies because she went in a different direction. And it was obviously what she wanted to do, but there's a spirit in this movie that we don't see in the other movies that she made. And yeah, I wanted, I want to know where that would have led. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting thinking about, you know, what alternate universe path sort of yeah. exists where, uh, where there was, uh, you know, with the what's up doc cinematic universe and uh, <laughs> heist and pictures, heist pictures. She would have made heist pictures. Oh, actually that's a really interesting idea. She would have been good at it. Oh yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, this I kind of love that. Yeah. This is kind of a heist movie anyway. Yeah. But the heist is being perpetrated on every character at the same time. Yeah. Now, and now you've got me thinking about like, man, what, 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 what would happen if she joined the like Michael Mann stable in like the 80s <laughs> and stuff? Yeah. That, uh, well, she wouldn't obviously be- not slapstick comedy, but, um, yeah, Michael Mann doesn't have much use for women. So that's the been, unfortunate thing. I would have been just, unsatisfying. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is there anything of, of what's up doc that you've referenced or used or, or, uh, taken as inspiration? Um, for receiver, the film that I've got out now, realistically, no, um, <laughs> in general is <laughs> a receiver is a very different kind. It's a psychological horror film. It's, it's hard to weave slapstick routines from the, from the seventies into that. Yeah. But, um, but for some, for some work that I've done in the past, I, I think so. There was a romantic comedy, a little short that I made, um, years ago that owed, I think quite a lot to, to like have to, uh, the original Thomas Crown Affair and half to to What's Up Doc, um, okay. and I think the biggest thing that probably that that probably follows me in my work um, with with a film like What's Up Doc is just the awareness of directorial intent, and I'll explain what I mean by that. In the sure. idea that it is really easy because fundamentally, even if you go to film school like I do everybody learns how to make films on their own in a sense, because I mean, that's kind of how it works with all art, unless you are actually working as somebody's direct uh, protege, which doesn't really exist in the world of cinema much anymore. Then you're, you're stumbling around in the dark for the first couple of years that you're making movies because you're trying to figure out what works both as a film and also just what works for you as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's really easy, I think, to get into this idea that directorial intent is this umbrella that has to influence every single thing that you do in the sense that it is it, it, like, like Plato's allegory of the cave, like every part of the film has to, has to be a representative standalone thing that, that talks about your directorial intent. So if you were to split off a performance or a shot or a, a, a little edit that you did at the end of a, a, of a scene, all of those should point back to what you want the audience to get across. Um, And that's, of course, as you get into doing more complex work, that's actually not true. And some of the better ways of getting your, your, your directorial intent across are actually to not do the stereotypical thing, to not be constantly pointing back at the, at the, at the text, but to hide things in subtext by incongruous things in the text. And what I love about, about, and I suppose the argument could be made that that all of Bogdanovich's classic films do this to a certain extent. But I think for What's Up Doc in particular, he's not 
in every shot, in every single moment, he is not screaming at the top of his lungs what he wants you to get across. Some of that comes across in, in points that we've referenced today already. The, the idea of it being filmed like a very straightforward studio romantic comedy from the 60s or the idea that it's, it's not a really, you know, a really loud film in the way that you'd expect it to be or or the fact that you know it doesn't have a lot of close-ups and is willing to sit back and 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 uh play a little less dogmatically in the idea of being filmed like a comedy Mm -hmm. and so what i love is that you know it's it's a bogdanovich film that doesn't have his name screamed in every single frame and i think it's stronger for that because he gets really great really funny really enjoyable experiences and performances from from everybody working with him both in front and behind the camera and that to me is like the big lesson that's the kind of thing that makes a film a classic that's the kind of thing that i think makes it last you know in people's minds and have films just attached to your head and follow you around in your life, even if it's film that's not a classic, is that there is a level of incongruity and complexity in terms of how the film presents what it is about. Yeah, you're right. It is his least auteurist film, maybe because he's trying to emulate someone like Howard Hawks who never put a stamp on anything. Yeah, that's, that's, that is a much more succinct way of, say, of saying what I wasted a lot of words. No, 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 no. I wouldn't have even thought about it until you said that. Yeah, but, but yeah, by emulating someone who didn't have a directorial signature, he made his most satisfying movie. Yeah, it's weird how that works, but I think I think there is something in that. I think that's probably why for for all the classic Bogdanovich films of the like the trifecta, we might say, all of which I need to be clear, I do love. Hmm. Uh, this is the one that I have watched the most, and this is the one that I continue to watch. And I think it's because I'm always getting something new in a way that I don't think I necessarily do quite with the other two, because as you said. Um, you know, much more succinctly than 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 I did, but like they are much more tourist works than What's Up Doc is, and I think I think there's a charm to the fact that the slapstick comedy lets me bring myself to the table a little bit every time that I watch it, in a way that the other two probably don't quite as much. Yeah, and What's Up Doc has no tragic element; like it just doesn't. There's nothing downbeat about it. It's even ex- with the with the one exception of Kenneth Marr's character, who's absolutely deserving of of a misery, and everything that happens to him is because of his own arrogance and his and the fact that he just doesn't listen to anybody else. Everyone else does get a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, even the judge gets to know that his daughter's going off to college again. Yeah, Spo- I know. Spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But-, but of course he is, right? Of course yeah. he is, because that's the whole point of the entire movie. It gets yeah. us to that. Yeah. No, it's. Yeah, you're right. It's so great, I think, because it does. Because it, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. It gives everybody a happy ending, and in a way that's that like is funny and enjoyable, and also not cheap. Like none of those happy endings are throwaways. It would have been so cheap to make the happy ending for for um, uh, for Eunice and oh god, um, the benefactor Larrabee. Uh, yeah, like cheap and a throwaway. And even though even though their happy ending is basically just a coda on the end of a scene that lasts maybe a minute and a half, but it it feels it feels right. Like it it really tracks for what the film has set up about both of those characters. So like even the people you don't expect to get a happy ending get a happy ending that works and that is really kind of kind and just to them. I don't know. I, it's it's just so charming because there is 
like you said, there is there is nothing tragic about it. It is a movie that unreservedly puts a stupid grin on my face every time I watch it. My thanks to Kevin Campbell, whose award-winning short Receiver is streaming in the Real Asian Film Festival through this Thursday, November 19th. Just search for the Film Frenzy program at realasian.com. Thanks also to Jen Gorman. She knows what she did. You can find Kevin on Twitter at CCAMOperator, all one word, C-C-A-M-O-P-E-R-A-T-O-R. And you can find What's Up Doc on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where, in addition to writing about film and television, I host a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.